Over a hundred Russian spies pretending to be diplomats have been expelled from the United States and 24 other Western countries in response to Vladimir Putin's poisoning of a former spy and his daughter in Salisbury, Britain. In an angry response to the expulsions, Putin said, quote, I didn't poison those people, and anyone who says I did is going to get a dose of plutonium in their tea. After all, I am a murderous thug, and so if anyone calls me a murderous thug, I will murder them. That's how the whole murderous thug thing works, unquote. Putin went on to say that as an independent, sovereign nation, Russia had the right to kill anyone it wanted. Media reaction to the expulsions was mixed. The New York Times, a former newspaper, said Trump did the right thing by expelling the Russians, but he should have also put his thumbs in his ears and waggled his fingers at Putin because presidential rhetoric matters. CNN said Trump's tough line on Russia just proved Trump can't be trusted since everyone knows Trump is a Russian pawn and he's supposed to be nice to the Russians, but now has betrayed them. Don Lemon was not available for comment because he had crawled under his desk to retrieve a penny dropped and couldn't find his way out. Meanwhile, Stormy Daniels continues to have large breasts. So let's get back to talking about her. Trigger warning, I'm Andrew Claven, and this is The Andrew Claven Show. I feel hunky-dunky, life is tickety-boo. Birds are winging, also singing, hunky-dunky-dee-doo. Ship-shaped, ipsy-topsy, the world is zippity-zing. It's a wonderful day, hooray, hooray, it makes me want to sing. Oh, hurrah, hooray. Oh, hooray, hurrah. Hooray, hurrah. mailbag day tomorrow, and you know the drill. By this time, you should know the drill. If you are a subscriber, you come on over to thedailywire.com. If you're not a subscriber, come on over to thedailywire.com and subscribe. Lousy 10 bucks a month, and you can ask questions in the mailbag about anything you want. My answers are guaranteed, 100% correct, and will change your life for a, for a few of you. It will change your life for the better. Go to thedailywire.com, hit the podcast button, go to the Andrew Claven podcast, then hit the uh, mailbag button and just type in your questions. Anything you want to ask, I will answer. Get your questions in now. Subscribe. And if you subscribe for a year, not only will we solve all your problems, but we will give you the Leftist Tears Tumblr, which you can drink with in your new joy. In your new joy, you can not only be joyful, you can also drink leftist tears from your tumblers. Uh, and also we have a guest today, Obian Uju Okosha, uh, who is a, I, I guess I will call her a pro-life warrior. She is fighting against abortion imperialism, the West's uh, push to bring abortion and hypersexuality to Africa. A really interesting interview. Meanwhile, we should talk about the Freedom Project Academy, because if you have kids and if you have started to check out schools, you know that schools are not what they used to be. They weren't even what they used to be when they used to be that. And even before that, some of them weren't what they should have been. But so America schools, you know, you used to learn, you used to get civics, you used to be taught why America believed what it believed, why it was a great country, why we had Judeo-Christian values, classics, all those things. They don't do it anymore. So the Freedom Project Academy delivers a fully accredited Judeo-Christian classical online school for kindergarten through high school. It's an incredible interactive education where students attend live classes every day with teachers and fellow classmates from across the country. Freedom Project Academy, the FPA, doesn't accept a penny of government funding, which allows them to stay committed to teaching students how to think, not what to think. Families can enroll students full-time or just start with a single 
class. It's entirely up to you. Here's what you do. Go to freedomforschool.com and request your free information packet from Freedom Project Academy. Enrollment ends in July, but classes fill up fast. Go to freedomforschool.com. Get a free information packet, freedomforschool.com. And don't forget, please, to tell them that I sent you so they, com they come back and then you can come back because I'll still be here. There's one thing, there's one thing I really want to point out about these Russian expulsions. It's very uh, Cold War stuff that uh, totally deserve, completely the right thing to do. They should do more of this stuff, especially strangling the money that the oligarchs, Putin's kind of pawns, who he's made rich by giving, them, giving the riches of the country to these oligarchs, he's made them wealthy, but they don't want to spend it in Russia because it's a crummy country. So they come to Europe, they come to America to spend their money. We should also cut off that possibility, limit their travel, all those things. But this is still a, a good thing to have done. And it feels like real Cold War stuff. But here's the thing. It's not the Cold War. Why? Because Russia has no ideology. Russia doesn't believe in anything. Putin just wants his power back. He just wants to be a big player on the world stage again. And both George W. Bush and Obama were pushovers. And so he's expanded his power, even though all he's got is gasoline. You know, it's all he's got to support himself. There's no, he hasn't got big industries. He hasn't got a creative country. He's just got the gas. Somebody said the other day, it's a gas station with nuclear weapons. And, and this is what, uh, you know, Putin is just trying to establish. He's just trying to show that he can push anybody around because that's where his prestige comes from. But the real question, the thing that really got me is the fact in the old days, see, we could fight the Russian ideology of communism, or as Bernie Sanders would call it, socialism. We could fight it with an ideology of freedom. We said we don't have an ism. We just have freedom and liberty to talk things out and solve them among ourselves, each person a free individual, each person free from the state. My question is, Russia doesn't have its ideology anymore. Does America have its ideology? When Donald Trump says America first, is he talking about anything more than what Vladimir Putin is talking about? Let me read you two things that caught my eye yesterday, because I really think this, these are amazing little stories, but they actually say something big. You know, remember uh, Barack Obama? Barack Obama, Obama, it's so hard to remember now that his political legacy has drifted away like radioactive dust after a nuclear war. But he was, uh, wh whatever his name was, he was speaking at an engagement in Japan, and he was asked about these idiot kids who are out on the street trying to take away our constitutional right to bear arms. And he said, you know, if I could, if I could organize effectively, then, you know, quote, I would create a hundred or a thousand or a million young Barack Obamas or Michelle Obamas or the next group of people who could take that baton in that relay race that is human progress. A lot of our problems are caused by old men. No offense, men who are old. Well, I do take offense and screw you, you obnoxious blot of corruption. No offense, obnoxious blots who are corrupt. But, but here's the thing. So the problem is, the problem is, Everybody is not Barack Obama. That's the problem. And not only that, there's actually news being distributed that Barack Obama doesn't agree with. It's amazing. Listen, listen to him talk about this. There's a viciousness to politics and a polarization of very sharp lines that are drawn uh, that make it more difficult to govern. And some of the reason for that is, I think, because of information. Uh, it used to be that in the United States, there were three television stations. Basically, everybody watched the same thing. Everybody got their news from the same sources. And so everybody had more or less a similar view of the world. 
But today, because of first cable television and then now the internet, uh, people have 500 channels to choose from, and they are able to find the news that fits their views instead of fitting their views to the news. See, see, if only we had a million little Barack Obamas, Barack Obama could deliver the news to Barack Obama, and then Barack Obama could share his opinion with Barack Obama, and that would be the perfect world. So that's one thing, one little story I wanted to point out. And the other is from the BBC, this headline. Here's the headline. Oxford men guilty of sexual exploitation on a massive scale. Let's show the picture of the Oxford men. Here they are. Here are the Oxford men. Khalid Hussein, Aladita Yousaf, Kamir Iqbal, Alid Hussein, Ramin Ahmed, Moinul Islam, and Kamran Khan. What are they teaching those Oxford men at the university? One wonders. What, that's, that is what the BBC feels connects these men, is that they are all from Oxford. You know, they, I'm, sure, I'm surprised they didn't show them in their, you know, their uh, board, mortar board hats with their black gowns as they <laughs> paraded into graduating from Oxford University. It, so I want to put these two stories together. Barack Obama represents a point of view. Now, it's come to be known as globalism, but I don't really like that term because the world is getting to be a global place. We understand that. That's not the question. The question is, are there going to be sovereign nations? And what rules are is the globe going to follow? It really is expertism. It's the idea that Barack Obama knows. He used to say, I wish I could just uh, gather together with my experts and solve all the problems, but I have to be responsible to these people, these people who kept sending out news that disagrees with my news. What we need is millions and millions of little Barack Obamas talking to other Barack Obamas, doing Barack Obama things. It's, it's expertism. It's elite expertism. That is the worldview that he represents. And this worldview basically says to you, your God doesn't exist. Men are not men and women are not women. All these rights you heard about, these, that's just a fiction. It's just a convenient fiction. You don't need a job. We'll, we'll give you money. Everything is fine. You're, and you're really, you don't have any free will anyway. You just take these drugs and now you'll feel happier. That, that, those are what the experts are telling you. And so they can't understand why those aren't Oxford men. And so they let millions of them sweep into Europe and they couldn't under, what's the problem? We have a, you know, we understand that this is a global world. We all have to get along together. So if I send in, you know, 10,000 Muslim men from Syria into a city of 3,000 people, what's the problem? <laughs> they're just Oxford men. They're just they're from Oxford. They're Oxford men. It's all fine. That is the world that the people answered with Donald Trump and other people who are far, far uh, to the right of Donald Trump in Europe. That was the people's answer was Donald Trump. And and so what does that mean, right? They they've sent this they've sent this man here, this Donald Trump, and all we've heard since then is absolute rage, right? We heard Russia, like I said yesterday, we heard Russia, and then it, Russia didn't work. In fact, it turned out that it was Obama who was corrupt. Well, that's no good. Well, here's Stormy Daniels. Look, look, she has enormous breasts, and she slept and she spanked. I mean, the reason, the reason I love talking about Stormy Daniels is because she spanked Donald Trump with a magazine with his face on it, which seems to me a perfect symbol of Western culture at this moment. But it's anything, anything to keep from hearing the voice 
of the people. Now, we're going to get back to this in a minute, but first, I have to talk about, if you want to spread the word of the voice of the people, you need stamps, right? Because sometimes you got to send, still send things through the post office. The post office is great. I always, I, I never want to say anything against the post office because I've lived off the post office my entire life. But like everything else, you want the post office in your computer. And that's why you go to stamps.com. Stamps.com will let you access all the amazing services of the post office right from your desk 24-7 when it's convenient to you. You don't have to wait for the post office to be open. You don't have to go there. You can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter, any package using your own computer and printer, and the mail carrier picks it up. Just click print mail. You are done. I personally like it because I like to watch the envelope go in and come out with a stamp on it. I'm, I'm a simple man, you know, like, cool, that's cool. All right, right now, you can get a special offer from stamps.com. Uh, it includes up to $55. This is a new offer. I didn't see this before. It's $55 in free postage, a digital scale, and a four-week trial. That's a good offer. Here's how you get it. Go to stamps.com, click on the radio microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in Clavin. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, sure, sure, 55 bucks in postage, but how do you spell Clavin? K-L-A-V-A-N. No ease. There is no, you can never relax when you're spelling Clavin because there is no ease in Clavin. Stamps.com, enter Clavin, up to $55 in free postage, a digital scale, and a four-week trial, plus the entire post office in your computer. So let's take a look at this uh, at this Stormy Daniels thing. And I, like I said, most of the Stormy Daniels thing I like because it's hilarious, you know, it's just, it's just really funny. But th there's really, there was a big, big audience for the CNN thing, and they're bragging about it. Like, yes, we got so far down in the dirt that people showed up to watch Anderson Cooper stand on his head in a pile of crap. You know, that's why people showed up. You know, I, I tweeted out yesterday, if Stormy Daniels had done it naked, twice as many people would have shown up, and it still would have been trash, okay? But, but you know, on the right, too, they're saying, oh, this is it. The Wall Street Journal had a uh, an editorial today saying, you know, this is could be the beginning of the end. You know, this is uh, just shows that he brings this misery on himself. A lot of never Trumpers are talking about this and and they're saying it's hypocritical of the right not to criticize Trump for sexual things when we've been yelling about the Clinton who was accused of rape, Ted Kennedy who left his mistress to die in a sinking car, uh, Anthony Weiner who showed his pictures to underage girls. Somehow that's the same as this billionaire playboy being a billionaire playboy. I don't think it is, but still, okay, that they're very upset about our hypocrisy. So while we're talking about hypocrisy, I have to just show you, I have to show you this, and this is from our pals at Newsbusters. We love this site. And they just two great montages. First, let's take CNN. This was before this is before the uh, 60 Minutes interview. Stormy Daniels sent out a tweet of, against Trump, and this is the reaction of a CNN panel talking about this porn star who says she had an affair with the president before he was president. So I think the president has met his match in mm. uh, Stormy Daniels. They're pretty similar. They know how to use the media. They're not afraid uh, to do it. She's got a she's got a new lawyer who's all about. 
the publicity, getting on television. They're promoting this interview that she's doing on 60 Minutes. I think that this is one of the few stories in the Trump era that has actually stuck uh, for several weeks now, and in part because I think Stormy Daniels and her lawyer have been very savvy in the way that they've kept this alive by offering these little breadcrumbs. It's a, it's a political nightmare right now for the president, potentially, isn't it? It, it absolutely is, and, and, and we should just stop for a second and think about what we're talking about. We're talking about hush money paid to a pornographic actress. We're talking about uh, intimidation to try to prevent a pornographic actress from actually going out and talking about her relationship with the president. We're talking about other women right now who are saying that uh, uh, actions were taken to prevent them from telling this story about their relationship with the president. If this was any other president, they would be gone. They would be thrown out of the White House. Okay, okay, so here's a woman. He says anybody, any other president would be gone for a relationship he had with a porn star, one night stand. He had a consensual relationship, which she says was a consensual relationship before he became president. Now, here is a montage of the news reaction when Bill Clinton, who was president, was exposed for having not only having an affair in the Oval Office, but was accused of Paula Jones, by Paula Jones, of sexual harassment, was accused by Kathleen Willie, I think it's pronounced, of chasing her around the Oval Office and grabbing at her, uh, was accused of by Juanita Broderick of a brutal and bloody rape. Here is your news media at work covering those stories back in the day. Some sleazy woman with big hair coming out of the trailer <laughs> wait a minute. I think she's a dubious witness. I really do. We've got an awful lot to talk about this week, including the uh, sexual harassment suit against the president. Of course, in that one, it's tough to figure out who's really being harassed. Sam not trying to hurt the president. Does she say that with a straight face? Why does anyone care what this woman has to say? But is, bottom line, Sam, is, is she not trying to, to, to capitalize on this in, in effect to, to, to profit from impugning the president? I, I have to profess complete confusion over this entire case, why this is even a case. If any man, I don't care who he is, invites me to a room and pulls his pants down and asks me to do something, he's going to have a decided limp from that day on. <laughs> and I go on with my life. I don't need to sue anyone. It doesn't traumatize me. I don't understand why this is even a case to begin with. The story doesn't deserve to be dignified by being broadcast and displayed. What, what I find fascinating about this case is that we've sunk so low now that a charge of this magnitude can be leveled against the President of the United States with next to no evidence at all. It's, I think that's outrageous. I was reading either in Time or Newsweek that even the woman herself, Juanita Broderick, said she hoped that this thing went away this week. And she, even she was sick of hearing about it. It's her story. But. Well, let's hope she gets her way with that. Are we going to look back on this time 100 years from now the way we look back on Salem? We're reaching the point where we're going to wind up with government by goody-goodies, government with pe by people who have done nothing in their life except walk the straight and narrow, who have no creative thoughts. We're going to look back on this 100 years from now and say we drove some of our best people out of politics. <laughs> I wonder what Joe Klein is thinking now. That was Dan Rather talking to Don Imus. Yeah, I hope she gets her wish and she goes away, and I hope it all goes away. When they're talking about the hypocrisy of the people, maybe the people, some of the people are hypocrites. I, I never went after Bill Clinton for his sexual affair, so I feel like I'm on solid ground. But you know what? I don't care whether the people who support Trump are hypocrites, and I'll tell you why. They're trying to tell you something. They sent 
an admittedly flawed man, like all of us are flawed men and women, they sent a flawed man to the White House because they couldn't get your damned attention, you million little Barack Obamas all talking to each other. They couldn't get your attention. You would not listen to them. And now, you know, they say, they, they especially pick on the evangelicals because the evangelicals have traditionally been very anti, you know, sexual malfeasance and they have taken this out on political figures. But and now they're not taking it out. And yet and yet there is maybe there's some hypocrisy. CNN interviewed a, a group of women, I think, in, yeah, evangelical women and asked them about this Stormy Daniels interview. A lot of them said, well, I don't believe her. I believe her. I, be <laughs> I mean, I believe they had sex. Like I said, the guy was a, a billionaire playboy. If he didn't have sex with her, he, he's going to have to explain why to the board of the billionaire playboys club. But I believe, but but they also said some other things that I just that struck me as totally sensible and totally realistic, and also a way of just trying to get you to hear what they wanted to say. Let's play a little bit of this. This is the media defining the narrative. The people, we the people, are ready to define the narrative, and it's not about tawdry sexual uh, peccadillos. In order for somebody to come forward, you can be pushed by somebody else. Correct. Right. And so I think the thing is, is you're looking for a way to impeach my president that I worked very hard for. I'm asking you about a Stormy Daniels interview on 60 Minutes, period. That's it. And about that so-called hush money, these women don't see Trump's fingerprints on it, only his lawyer, Michael Cohen's. Maybe he thought he was just doing a favor to try to quash some negativity. Right when there was even, even though it didn't even happen just to get rid of the story that's not even true. Which would also mm -hmm. follow suit that that uh, non-disclosure was unsigned because Trump may not have known about it at all. Worst case scenario, if he slept with her, whatever, that's between him, the that's Lord, right. and his family. Exactly. That is not right. about exactly. the job he's doing in running our country, in which he's doing an amazing job. You know, there is a narrative going along uh, around among the elites on both the left and the right that goes like this. The Enlightenment, which is this vague phrase that they use, they, I don't even think they fully understand how the Enlightenment worked or how, what a complex ta uh, tapestry it was of ideas and thoughts and interactions and actions. But they say the Enlightenment has led us, it has been the rule of experts, of scientists, of brilliant minds. We've given you longer life. We've given you iPhones. We've given you a better health, more food, more wealth. Everybody's richer. Every, look how well we've done. But you, you ungrateful people, you ungrateful human beings, you have turned away and you want to go back. And the word they keep using is tribalism. You want to go back to your tribe. You want to get away from this beautiful global world we made and go back to this whole nationalistic America first thing. What is wrong with you? What is wrong with you? As I said at the beginning, these people do not get it. I mean, depression is on the rise. Suicide is on the rise. And what they keep telling us is everything you thought, everything you cared about, everything that gave your life meaning does not matter. Your God, ah, you know, the Enlightenment took us away from God, which, by the way, isn't true, but never mind. You know, the Enlightenment took us away from God. Now, we don't want to go back there. You know, we don't want to go back to nation states. What's wrong with you, you know? So, so all right, so you're out of work. 
but somebody in Kuala Lumpur now has a job, so you know, suck it up. Don't you know? So take some opiates, and you'll feel much better. You don't exist anyway. You're just a, a machine. So if you put these chemicals in, you'll feel so much better. And you know, when the people speak, it is inarticulate because there's millions of us. There's millions of us. We we don't speak with one voice. We can't speak clearly. That is why we have spokesmen. That's why people come out and speak for us. We elect people to speak for us. Trump is a, like I said, he's a flawed guy. But he's telling, he's the way the people are telling these elites, these millions of millions of Barack Obamas, he's telling them, we want, when we say out we want our country back, we say we want the American way back. We want all the logic that went into our freedoms, all the logic that went into our humanity, all the logic that went into our religion back because it was true, it was right. The, you know, the experts didn't make America. America made way for the experts. The experts are living off the good of America, and that's what the people want back. You can attack Trump all you want, and some of your attacks are going to hit home because, like I said, he's a flawed guy. But maybe, maybe it would be a better idea to actually listen to what the people are trying to say, actually start scratching your pointy little Barack Obama heads, and start thinking about what they were trying to tell. Why are they rejecting this beautiful, perfect world you made? Maybe because it's empty, maybe because it's meaningless, maybe because you're wrong. Maybe because your worldview is wrong. All right, we have got the wonderful, wonderful, she's really one of my favorite people, even though I can't pronounce her name, but we, because <laughs> nobody can. We, I call her Uju, that's her nickname, and uh, uh, I'm just crazy about her. She's written a book called Target Africa, Ideological Neocolonialism in the 21st Century. We're going to be talking about it, but first, I got to say goodbye to Facebook and YouTube. Come on over to thedailywire.com, subscribe, and then ask questions in the mailbag, and I'll solve all your problems for a lousy 10 bucks. What more do you want? Come on over. All right, Obianuju Ikosha. She is the author of Target Africa, Ideological Neocolonialism in the 21st Century. You should get the book. It is really, really powerful. If you look on the back, it has a blurb from me. I almost never give anybody blurbs. Uh, but, uh, but Uju is an internationally acclaimed pro-life speaker and strategist, as well as the founder and president of Culture of Life Africa, which is dedicated to the promotion and defense of the African values of the sanctity of life, beauty of marriage, blessings of motherhood, and the dignity of family life. She is currently in the UK working at a hospital as a specialist biomedical scientist in hematology, very accomplished and uh, eloquent woman, Obian Uju Ikosha. Uju, thank you so much for coming on. I know you're traveling all over the country speaking about your new book, Target Africa. Um, you know, I, I read this, uh, I guess, in an advanced reading copy, and the thing that really struck me about it is you are an activist for uh, for life, for the sac sacredness of life, and also for a kind of conservative view of sexuality and human sexual relations. But what really struck me about it is the way you put it in terms of neocolonialism. You put this in terms of basically an imperialistic effort by the West to impose Western standards on Africa. Can you explain that a little bit, why you see it that way? Yeah, sure. So obviously anyone who would read the book Target Africa would say, oh, this woman is so conservative. Maybe I would come across as a really, uh, as an equivalent of a really conservative Western person. But really, this point of view, Andrew, is nothing other than the ordinary or standard uh, uh, level of, of conservatism we have as far as social issues are concerned in Africa or, you know, so, sexual morality and, and things like that. So, so I spoke about this um, from the point of view 
was an Af of an African woman. I was born and raised in Africa. I was educated in Africa before I came to live in, in the UK. So, and these are things that I, I not only that I heard growing up, but I, I, I learned from home, from school, from the general society. Uh, and then just growing up and, and trying to live out my life in Europe, I have also come to the point where I've compared how uh, my own background was or the community or the society or the country where I came from versus the, the countries in the West. Uh, but also just in writing the book, I knew that it's not enough to say, yeah, this is what my mom thought me or this is what my grandmother believed or, you know, this is what the women I know believe. I also had to go forward to find research. And Andrew, you know this because you've read this. I went ahead to find research to show really that the majority of the African populations have these views on these particular issues, like, like abortion, for example. Uh, so if, if the Western countries that are dealing with African countries, as far as aid is concerned, as far as humanitarian help you know, is concerned, if they are coming to us and they're telling us, not only are we coming to give you help, but we want you to uh, change your own views, to leave your own uh, values behind and adopt our own values in order for us to be uh, friends together, in order, in order for us to keep giving you money or keep giving you this aid, that really, and Andrew, is, uh, is ideological colonization as anybody would, would like to uh, look at it and see so they're, for themselves. They're basically paying, paying aid and the prices, you have to conform to this way of looking at things. And they're selling abortion very hard. One of the ways they do this is by what you call population alarmism. Uh, describe yes. that. What, what is that exactly? So population alarmism, um, you know, is, is something similar to uh, what Thomas Malthus did, you know, all, all this, I think it was like a century ago, or even more recently, Professor Paul Ehrlich, who is still very much alive and very much around, who wrote Population Bomb, I think that's the name of his book. So it's whereby people come in and, and look at, look at a, a, a country or a town or a city and say, oh gosh, we are so overpopulated here. By, ne by this time next year, we are going to run out of water. Water, we would start drinking each other's blood. Uh, we would run out of food. <laughs> well, we've heard it because even people talking about climate change, you do know, right? It's people who tell you in the next five years, there will no longer be uh, New York who know, will be underwater. You know, we've heard these things. And in terms of population, they're doing it to the African countries. They, they come in and they, they tell us in the next five or 10 or 20 years, uh, Nigeria will, will be a, bit, a 1 billion people population. So they come in, they, they, sound the alarm, but it's not enough for them to sound the alarm. They then have to push our own African leaders uh, into this fear mode. So they're trying to push contraception in every way possible. They are trying to force people. And, and honestly, I'm not saying let people not use contraception. You know, you already know my views on that. But I'm saying that when the government steps in and they are trying to get women who are so poor that they have, uh, they have no leverage against government, the government can get women. In the case of African countries, they're getting women on contraceptives, even almost without consent, even without full, full information. Uh, so it's, it's incredible, and it's all leading back to the Western countries who come out and they tell us that we are going to be overpopulated, that Africa is going to be the highest populated continent in the next, you know, by 20, 2050. And so they have to do everything possible to help us uh, to reduce our population. Uh, it's incredible. The weird thing about this to me is that they keep, have all this terror about population. And Malthus, as you say, turned out to be wrong about everything. Uh, yeah. They terrorize you about the population, but at the same time, they're kind of teaching young people 
to be more sexual. Is, is that fair to say? Precisely. So they, it, on, on one hand, they're telling us you're so overpopulated, but what, what is, you know, what, how does a human being get conceived? It's through sexual activity. And then they go into African schools, they go into primary schools, Andrew, and they're, they're giving our children condoms. And it's not just giving them condoms. They're coming in with condom campaigns that are so sexualized. It's, it, it's unbelievable. They, you know, they, they, there was a program in Kenya that was called condom for kids, right? It does have an actual name that the government gave it, but the Kenyans themselves call this program condom for kids. Now, if you read the, the fine prints of this project and the blueprints of the project, you find out that it was paid for by Western donors, right? It wasn't, it, it was rerun by the Kenyan government, but it was actually paid for by someone else sitting in DC or sitting in London or, you know, sitting in, in Paris. They're paying for these projects, but then they're bringing condoms for children. And they're saying that in Africa, they're so keen on getting condoms to the children that even the size of the children then becomes a problem. They say, well, they need it for like eight-year-old boys. So obviously, uh, they're trying to make accommodation for that. It's it's very bizarre. And I think there's quite a bit of perversion uh, in there. This is, uh, it, it's... Um, it's it's something that that shouldn't shouldn't be allowed to slide. People should wake up to it. It's happening every day. It's happening through agencies that we trust. It's happening through United Nations of of all people. So they they are running these projects and they are running the Africans down and and oppressing us in in many many you know, ways. It's interesting. One of the stories you tell in in Target Africa is you tell the story of the Ugandan ABC program, and this story has always caught my. Yes. I because it was actually pretty effective, wasn't it? It was. So Uganda had uh, the, the one of the most uh, drastic drops in, in HIV infection, if anyone didn't know about it. But there was a point in time when I think up to 30% of the Ugandan uh, adults uh, within, I think, the, within the age range of maybe 19 to 49, something like that, were infected with HIV AIDS. And people were suggesting to the government, let's do a massive condom campaign. Let's, let's, uh, let's bring in condoms into every school, every village. And the, the, the president at the time said, no, we're not going to do that. First of all, we will try what our tradition teaches us, which is that if this is a disease that is coming through sexual contact or, or irresponsible sexual activities, let us tell people and teach people about fidelity. So if you have one, one wife, one husband, just stick to one person, don't, you know, polygamy is not good for you because we all so have polygamy uh, problems in parts of Africa, uh, then abstinence for young people, it just strengthen them and give them the support system uh, for children to know that they can actually uh, abstain from, from irresponsible sexual activities. So they promoted this responsibility approach, I would say, throughout the country. And within a space of 10 years, there was this drastic drop that has been, uh, that has remained uh, like almost a mystery to scholars and people who have taken note of it. Because, yeah, because even South Africa hasn't had any success like that. In South Africa, they're, they're drowning under condoms. They, they have so much uh, condoms going through their villages, and yet no one has had as much success as the Ugandans as far as HIV prevention is concerned. But they kind of destroyed, is it true that they destroyed that pro? I mean, it was, it was ABC because it was ab yes. abstinence, be faithful, abstinence, and at the, as a faithful. last resort condoms. Now that, pro and, That's and right. now that program was taken apart, wasn't it, by Western forces? It has been taken apart. It, I would say, it, it, uh, like, during the Obama administration, so starting from, I think, towards the end of 2008, beginning of 2009, of course, when the presidency started, uh, so much 
you know, money started going towards towards uh, the Ugandan people through the USAID. It's going in for condoms. They are doing everything possible to undo uh, what the president of Uganda at the time, what he he and his wife and his administration had set up in the country. And at the time, they had so many uh, posters and billboards around the country that promoted abstinence, that made it so um, so desirable for people to wait for marriage. You know, these kinds of things. They had it all. So, as of now, right, I went to Uganda, I think it was in 2015, so President Obama was still president. As I was coming from the airport, heading towards Kampala, I was coming from Entebbe, there were these massive billboards of, of condoms, you know, and I thought, who's paying for these billboards? So I asked the driver to stop me, to take a closer look at the billboards, and of course it was being paid for by the United States wow. government. These are billboards in Kampala. So the Americans may not even know or realize that their tax dollars are being used to put billboards uh, you know, uh, uh, just around the continent of Africa, billboards like these, billboards promoting condoms in places where people have actually not asked It really it. is a telling story because the if the purpose was to cut down on HIV infection, ABC did that, but it didn't. It, but ABC yes. did not sell the Western approach to sexuality, or the, at least the left wing uh, approach yeah. to sexuality, and that was really what they're selling. Uh, you know. You talk about feminism, which is really interesting to me because you talk very movingly about how you learned what a woman was by watching the women around you. And you're obviously a very accomplished lady. You're a scientist uh, working in um, in Britain and you have this you founded this organization for life. What what is it about the kind of feminism that's coming into Africa that you don't like? So feminism uh, is something that we have known in Africa, I know people will not believe this, but the, the what do you call the women's movement? The women's movement has flourished in Africa. So what has the women's movement been? It's that many African women, most African women rejoice in, in what they call the sisterhood. So ever since I was a child, my mother was always a part of the women's association of teachers, the women's association of, you know, whatever. All women, most women I know, in fact, belong to one woman, women's group or the other. So when you get into these women's groups, uh, even, even if it's a group that is of accomplished African women, it doesn't matter. They love men. They love the men in their lives. That's the difference between the African <laughs> feminism and the feminism in, in the West. We love men, right? The men in our lives are so important. So even if it's like the women's association of surgeons, right, or, or of Nigerian surgeons. So this is a group of women who are so accomplished in their professions. But the one thing that they continue to acknowledge within those groups is that our husbands are important. Our sons are important. The men in our lives are important. Even if it's the women association of female judges, we believe that men are also very important in society, and we believe so much in, in male-female complementarity and the role that men have to play within families. We don't want fatherless homes. We don't, even yeah. if the mother is a lawyer or a doctor or a judge, we don't want uh, fatherless children. We don't want fatherless homes. So the feminism that I learned growing up in Africa is, is I think it's that feminism which is firmly, um, uh, you know, which is affirming of, of the woman's identity as a, as a, first of all, as a human being who has dignity, but also as a daughter, as a mother, and as a wife. It's, it's, it's so important to the African woman. Motherhood is so important to the African woman. The national identity, the filial identity, these are so important to us. And then coming the second and third wave feminism coming, uh, coming at us from the West, people like Gloria Steinem, that particular ideology is being 
offered to African women as if we've never seen feminism before. So, of course, I'm writing about it in the book and showing that they're trying to get us to speak in their language, speak in their own terms. Um, it's an anti-male movement. It is very toxic. It's very poisonous. I've seen it happen in certain places in Africa where they find a handful of, of, of women, disgruntled women, and then they, they, they give them so much money. They fund them. Uh, these Western people fund these African women and try to use them as their entry point into the continent. Uh, and, and it's very, very offensive. Recently, I think it was Justin Trudeau, the Prime Minister of Canada, Canada decided that he's going to put in some millions of dollars into what he's calling the feminist or feminism policy, uh, feminism-friendly policy, foreign policy. So they're going to now be funding feminist groups in Africa. And feminists, when they say feminist groups, they mean the feminist groups that reflect the Western feminist groups. So in other words, they are trying to plant within our own communities uh, a kind of feminism which is very strange to us, which is very, uh, which is also really, really objectionable to us in many, many ways. I'm going to run out of time, but I want to ask you two uh, questions. I mean, one, uh, just we just have to briefly talk about abortion. Uh, this is something that you are a very uh, big crusader against abortion is this something that this is something that's also being pushed with the aid the, with the aid that comes in from the west also comes in this this movement to abort right yeah so abortion uh, we've uh, we, it's the, uh, most of the African countries don't have legal abortion. So there's 54 African countries out of 54, four of them have legal abortion. The other 50 countries don't have legal abortion or have all sorts of restrictions against abortion. So uh, we've also known that the people, the, the ring leaders uh, in different African countries who are pushing for legalization of abortion uh, are not the African people, but actually these are groups coming from the West uh, who are trying to push for legalization of abortion. So organizations like International Planned Parenthood Federation or the British organization Marie Stopes International. So these organizations come in, set up their clinics, they say they're family planning clinics, but within a year or two, they set up this strong activism, be it judicial activism or any kind of activism, and they're trying to get uh, some supporters in these African countries that will help them uh, or push for legalization of abortion. The problem is, Andrew, that uh, for many years as well, these same organizations, irrespective of the fact that they are working against African laws and they're working against African people uh, by virtue of the fact that they're pushing abortion, they are being funded by Western governments. Again, I'm sorry to belabor this point, but the Obama administration kept given money or, continue, or had continued all through to give money to International Planned Parenthood Federation, to Marie Stokes International, these terrible organizations performing a that perform abortions, even in some cases they had been caught. Uh, illegal abortions in some parts of Africa Africa. These are, I mean, this is this was no secret at all. It came out in the papers several times in different countries. So, but the Obama administration continued to fund these organizations, uh, giving them money, and then they're they're doing their their terrible work in Africa. So I have fought against it. Thank God President Trump at the beginning of last year reinstated the Mexico City policy. So we are grateful for that. He reinstated it. That meant that the United States government took away money from these organizations who continue to perform or promote abortions uh, as international work. So uh, I'm very grateful for that. And I'm hoping that the Americans will stand strong and continue to support the Mexico City policy, uh, which is really about respecting other people's pro-life culture. I have to stop there. Unfortunately, I could talk to you for another hour, but uh, it's a wonderful book. <laughs> Very powerful book, Target Africa, a really powerful point of view. Uh, you're doing great work. Thank you very much for coming on. Thank you, Andrew. All right, I'll, I'll see you Thank again. Thank you. Bye-bye. <laughs>
All right, Obianuju Ikeosha, Target Africa. Uh, really, really powerful book and a very, very impressive lady, I think. All right, we've been talking, I wanted to talk about uh, Holy Week this week. This is the week leading up to the crucifixion and then resurrection of Jesus on Easter. It starts with Palm Sunday when he went into Jerusalem uh, and leads up, as I say, to the crucifixion and the resurrection. And I, I just want to talk about some of the stuff I've been thinking about. Uh, not so much keyed into maybe the days, but just uh, the ideas. And one of the things I want to talk about is is the, the law, the Jewish law. This is a big subject around here at the Forward Publishing. We have people on opposite ends of the spectrum, uh, people who believe that the law, uh, the Jewish law, no longer matters. It's been completely fulfilled in Jesus, and now nobody has to follow any of it. Uh, and then people who believe that all of it is still in play, and you basically are being grafted onto the Jewish religion through Jesus, and you still have to play that out. Now, I think the reason I think it's an important subject, I know it sounds kind of like a technical theological subject, but I think it's also really about rules in general. And this is an important subject. Now, Jordan Peterson has his big bestseller, 12 Rules for Life, and people are desperate to know what are the rules. Everything's broken down, all the values are gone, so what are the rules? And the rules are part of an even bigger subject, which is objective moral truth and how it works versus subjective life. We have people on the left who say, the only thing that matters is my lived experience. I lived experience. And then we have people on the right who know, are so certain of the rules, they tell you, you know, you can't watch Game of Thrones or you won't go to heaven if you're watching Game of Thrones. And then if you don't watch Game of Thrones, you go to heaven and St. Peter says, I'll let you in a minute, but I got to finish watching Game of Thrones. So, so people know the rules. Now, I, I admit, and I think it's important to say this, that I have an eccentric way of reading the Bible. And it makes some of you angry. And all I would say to you is this, I occasionally take on your way of looking at reading the Bible to see what I can learn from that. You can take on mine for a little bit. You can still go back to reading it. Somebody said, I, uh, one of my listeners wrote to me and he said, you don't read the Bible liter literally, but you read it literately. And I hope that that is in fact the case. And my way of looking at the Bible is one, the Bible is in fact the book that God wants us to have about himself. Uh, it, I think it has Proved that over the years by the incredible wisdom and way of life that has grown out of its perspective. Uh, but two, it's a book written by men, right? And God, an angel of the Lord, could come down right now and stand by me and dictate into my ear. Still, what came out of my mouth would be wrong. I would still not get it perfectly right. Because when somebody speaks to you, two things happen. Somebody speaks and somebody hears. And you hear things, not just, it's not just that you hear things the way you want to. You hear things in your own individual way. They, go, they are filtered through your personal experience. This is how poetry happens, okay? Great poetry, if John Keats describes a tree, it's a unique tree, but the tree is still objectively there. We both see the tree, but we both see a tree through our own eyes. And that is the beauty of the world and the beauty of individual individualism and individuality is that the essence of the tree is objectively real, but as it is filtered through our perspective, it also becomes something more, something beautiful, something uh, unique. And, and it's important. The inner life is important because that's where all the important stuff happens. That's where you love your spouse. That's where you know God. That's where anything that strikes you as beautiful becomes beautiful. It's not objectively beautiful. It becomes beautiful in its interaction with you. But the essence of the thing, Thing, remains objectively what it is. So when God chose the Jews and spoke to them, he spoke to them, but they heard it as the Jews. And the rules and laws that came out of that conversation are Jewish rules and Jewish laws, even though they maintain the essence of the God word. If God had chosen the Japanese, 
first of all, the Jews would be a lot happier, but if he had chosen the Japanese, there would have been a Japanese set of rules. So the essence of the law remains the same, but the law itself remains particular to the Jews. And when Jesus came, he then basically gave this word of God, which he embodied, to the rest of the world. And he explained the essence of the law. And the essence of the law, he said, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And he demonstrated this, for instance, when he, the woman taken in adultery was brought to him to be stoned, and he said, let him who is without sin throw the, throw the first stone. In other words, the essence of the law remains the same. The woman had done wrong, but the way we live out the law can be different if it is seen through those two great commandments of love. After Jesus was gone, his key disciple, Peter, the guy he said he was going to build the church on, had a vision. And the vision went like this. Remember, the Jews had very, very complex and still have very complex ideas about what you could eat and what was right to eat and what was very wrong to eat and what was sinful to eat. And Peter had a vision, and the vision was uh, he became hungry and wanted something to eat and he fell into a trance, and he saw heaven opened, and something like a large sheet was let down to earth by its four corners, and it contained all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles and birds. And then a voice told, told Peter, get up, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter said, surely not, Lord, I have never eaten anything impure or unclean, but this kept happening, it kept happening to him again and again. And he understood the vision when he was invited to go and talk to some Gentiles. He said to them through this vision, I realize now how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. And uh, while Peter was still speaking those words, the Holy Spirit descended on the Gentiles, which shocked the hell out of him. He, was, he, said, he said, surely no one can stand in the way of the Gentiles being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we, we have. You're looking for rules, but the rules all hang on these two commandments. Love God and love your neighbor because he was made in the image of God. And if you haven't hung your life on those two rules and you haven't experienced the essence of the law, all the Bible quotes in the world won't help you. All the rules won't help you if you're not hanging it on those two rules. And I always say to people, if, the, if you come out, somehow come out of the Bible hating somebody, if you come out hating somebody, maybe you've taken a wrong turn at the whole love God, love your neighbor thing, okay? And that, that is my experience of the rules. And I'll talk, uh, tomorrow I'll talk a little bit about God versus other, Jesus versus other uh, religions, specifically uh, Buddhism, I think. Anyway. We will be there then. It's the mailbag. Get your questions in now. I will answer them all. Answers guaranteed 100% correct. Will change your life for some of you, for the better, for the rest, too bad. I'm Andrew Claven. This is The Andrew Claven Show. I'll see you tomorrow. The Andrew Claven Show is produced by Robert Sterling. Executive producer, Jeremy Boring. Senior producer, Jonathan Hay. Our supervising producer is Mathis Glover. Technical producer, Austin Stevens. Edited by Alex Zingaro. Audio is mixed by Mike Cormina. Hair and makeup is by Jesua Alvera. The Andrew Claven Show is a Daily Wire forward publishing production. Copyright forward publishing 2018.